If you have your Bibles, uh, you don't have to stand today, turn them on or open them up to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We're going to actually be going through the entire chapter of, of Ecclesiastes 4. But uh, I tell you what, I promise you it won't be long. Amen. Amen. So um, at least not long as I see it. Amen. <laughs> All right. We're going to continue in our series on Ecclesiastes. Today's message is entitled, It's Lonely at the Top. It's Lonely at the Top. And it's from Ecclesiastes 4. We're going to journey through this entire chapter, as I said. We're going to try to move uh, pretty swiftly here, so uh, get your highlighter out, underlining pen, or whatever the case may be, and follow along with us in this as we journey through this. In the first three chapter, uh, verse, or the first three verses of this chapter, the preacher Solomon, the preacher teacher of Ecclesiastes, paints a grim and solemn portrait of life. He draws us into the inner sanctum of a mind that ponders the particulars of life and death. It is obvious that the preacher is not merely providing us with some random thoughts about life, but indeed he is sharing the result of deep thought. It is an intently personal look into the life of one who enjoys all that worldly treasure and pleasure has to offer. In fact, the preacher is well qualified to speak of life in this manner because he has confronted life directly in his search for meaning. He has pursued all that life has to offer and determined that all is vanity, or the Hebrew word there is Abel. All is vanity and has no real Meaning, he determined that it's it's like life is like uh, striving after the wind, trying to find this meaning in life. It is meaningless, and it's deceptively meaningless. In Ecclesiastes chapter two, he details this feeling of hopeless vanity regarding life, and he says this in verse eleven. He says, "Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil." I had expended doing it, and behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Then he says in verse 17 of that same chapter, he says, so I hated life. How many people know somebody like that, amen? And if you don't know anybody, maybe that is you. I don't know. Are you going to walk through this with me today? Yes, he says, so I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and striving after the wind. In verse 22 of that same chapter, he says, uh, What has a man from all the toil and striving of his heart with which he toils beneath the sun? In verse 23, he says, For all his days are full of sorrow. Ever seem to you like trouble just won't end? Huh? In the old church, they used to sing a song, Trouble in my way. I got to cry sometimes. Trouble in my way. I've got to cross. It seems that there are times and seasons of life where trouble just won't end. He says, for all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. 
This also is vanity. Now the preacher begins chapter 4 with a look at oppression, the oppressed and those who are oppressors. In verse 1 he says again, I saw under all the oppressions that are done under the sun and behold the tears of the oppressed and they had no one to comfort them. And if you look in your Bible, there's an exclamation point. The preacher has great emotion as he's saying this. He's saying, I looked and I saw that there were people being oppressed and there was no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors was power. And there was no one to comfort them. He sets the tone of this chapter by saying... He had seen great injustice. He uses the terms oppressions, which can even mean extortion in some, some uses or some cases of that word. In, in, in any event, it is clear that he is aware of the fact that human civilization consists of many circumstances in which persons take advantage, extort, or oppress other fellow human beings. Amen, amen. But the preacher sees this oppression in a very simple yet fatalistic manner. He does not seem to look for an answer to the injustices which exists. On the contrary, he almost seems to accept the reality and even open the discussion that injustice is so horrible in life, it would be better not to have been born for those who suffer oppression. Verse 2. Look at what he says in verse 2. He says, I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. Think about that. He's saying that dead people are better off than people who are alive. Verse 3 says, but better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Look at, look at how fatalistic that sounds. That the, the living people, the dead people are, are, are better off than living people. And then the one who is the best is the one who has never been born. Because if you're never born, he's saying you never have to experience and you never have to see the evil that is done under the sun. And some of us sitting here right here today can identify with some of that evil amen some of us sitting here today can identify with the fact that evil simply sometimes just happens you don't have to be doing anything in particular and evil can show up do i have a witness there is there somebody here that can, can testify to the fact that I was minding my own business one day and, and going about my life and all of a sudden evil showed up. Maybe that's just me. I don't know. We can read these words with a certain kind of 
special attention because it seems as if the preacher is talking about the world in which we live today. For those of you who say that God's word, the Bible, does not speak to life in today's world, read this again. Read, read it again and look, and look at it. Look at it, say, how he says that there's an injustice and oppression and, and all those things. We see that in our world every single day. Everywhere we place our eyes, we see evil, oppression, and injustice. As stated in our earlier, earlier in this series, we find injustice in the place where justice ought to be. And we find wickedness in the place where righteousness ought to be. Now this in and of itself describes a world, a order, a world that is out of order, that is broken and in need of repair. That is the world in which we live. We're in a broken world. We're in a world that's out of order. We're in a world that is desperately in need of repair. People who ought to be loving each other are hating each other. People who are made in the image of God are disparaging that image in each other. We are in a broken world in need of repair. But this... Is not all the preacher sees. Even though he opens with this grim view of life, he spends most of chapter 4 talking about the human condition, specifically our desire to pursue that which we believe will provide meaning and fulfillment in our lives. We work. And then work some more. All with the idea that one day it's going to pay off. Some of us in here today are looking forward to that day where we've labored so that we can, we can live somewhere else. Maybe move to Florida, live in retirement, and play shuffleboard all day long. <laughs> we ignore we ignore, if we're honest, what is really important in life because something in us is so ambitious for what the world has to offer that we pursue it at all cost. Let me see the hands of all the hardworking people in here today. Just throw your hand up. That's right. That's right. All right. Look, you're hardworking. We are willing to sacrifice what is important in order to reach the top. Now, there's a word. Kiroshi is a Japanese word, and it means death from overwork. The syndrome is now so common in Japan that it claims as many as 30,000 victims each year. Its increase has caused such a concern that since 1990, the Japanese government has been forced to provide restitution for Kiroshi widows. 
Now, as Americans, we hear this, and we think to ourselves, that's crazy. What are these poor people thinking? Yet, all the while, many of us in this room, even today, are working ourselves to death, either literally or figuratively. The question is, why? What is driving us to work so hard and so long? Our natural temptation may be to claim, well, pastor, I work hard and long so I can glorify God. See, that's your super spiritual answer. (laughs) You're on a high level of spirituality when you throw that one out. Why do you work so hard? Why do you work so many long hours? Because I'm trying to glorify God. Well, let's look at your giving statement. Oh, did I say that out loud? I'm sorry. Let me move on. That's another sermon. (laughs) So look at this. Look at this. This may be true for you. You may be trying to glorify God, but I would suggest for most of us, it's only partially true. If the truth be known, many of us are working hard to climb the corporate ladder to impress our boss, to meet our own expectations, and here's the kicker, to make more money. Oh, it got quiet in here on that one. Don't look at me like you don't want to make more money. Nobody in here in the business of turning down a raise. <laughs> Somebody, your boss come in tomorrow and say, hey, I'm, I'm going to give you another $100,000. I'll give you $100,000 a year. Hey, oh, fantastic, great. Ain't nobody here saying, that's okay. I'm fine like I am. He couldn't even hardly get it out of his mouth good for you to be, where do I sign? <laughs> So, so, so think about this. However, working long and hard for these reasons can lead to bitter disappointment and possibly even a premature death. If you don't believe me, just ask the Japanese people. They know. Please do not misunderstand this, though. I'm not saying it's wrong to work because somebody in here is just saying, you know, don't go home saying, Pastor said, I don't have to work no more. That's not what I'm saying. In fact, the first thing that God gave a man is a job. Watch this now. God said, Adam, name them animals. That's your job. Now, I'm going to throw this out here for free. Ladies, if a man doesn't want to work, keep it moving. Nothing to see here. You'd be surprised. Now, you know, all these ladies, ladies clapping on that. Yeah, yeah. You'd be surprised how many women will put up with a man that doesn't even want to work. He sends you to work. While he tells you to call your mama to watch y'all's kids. So he can play PlayStation all day. Just chilling. Say, no, 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 no. Keep it moving. Nothing to see here. Fortunately, fortunately, Solomon has a solution for us. In Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 4 through 16, he encourages us, he encourages us to work smarter and not harder and longer. Now, how? That's the question, because you've heard that before. Somebody say, I'm working smarter and not harder. Well, how do you do that? That's easy for you to say when that overtime is lingering out there. 
So he says, work harder or smarter and not harder. And you do this by making three specific choices. And I'm going to share those with you today. The first choice you make is you choose contentment over achievement. Watch this now. You choose contentment over achievement. You've been conditioned to say and to think that achievement is higher than contentment. And you have pursued achievement and not found any contentment. Solomon imparts the truth about moderation in these first three verses. He discusses the workaholic, the lazy sluggard, and then strikes the biblical balance between those two extremes. In verse 4, look at what he says. Then I saw, all, I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Solomon once again observes life. He is a student of human nature and activity. In his people watching, Solomon discovers that people compete with one another in everything. The twofold use of the word every here undoubtedly means every type of labor and achievement rather than every individual instance of these things. The point is, here's the point right here. Much achievement is the result of a desire to be superior over others. You know one of the things that gets us in trouble in terms of our lives? Is something called the pride of life. The Bible talks about that. There's a a natural element in us to want to be superior over others. One of the things that makes marriage such a challenge is you have to subdue that natural tendency to want to be superior over your spouse. Oh, it got quiet in here, didn't it? Ladies say, if my husband just listened to me, Pastor, he'd be all right. <laughs> Amen. My wife clapped the loudest. I'm... <laughs> but men are saying, men are saying at the same time in the men's meeting, they're saying, I can't get my wife to listen or do anything I ask her to do. She won't follow my leadership. There's a natural tendency in human beings to be superior over the other. We live in a constant state of competition. Now, I'm going to tell you how I show this for all the married folks in here. When's the last time you tried to tell your spouse about themselves? And the first words out of their mouth is telling you where you messed up. Hmm? Oh, don't get quiet on me now. So here's what I need you to do. I need you to do this. Well, you don't do it. So think about that. There's a natural tendency to compete. We keep score. Well, last time, this is what happened. I remember when you didn't, see, we keep score. The Holy Spirit just told me I'm about to preach this by myself. I just. (laughs) 
research, research, maybe you don't believe me, research indicates that nine out of ten office workers suffer from professional envy of colleagues they perceive to have more glamorous or better paid jobs. What drives many people is to climb the corporate ladder and outdo other folks. This quest to get ahead is also true in other areas of our lives. We want to be more successful than our neighbors and friends. The clothes that you're wearing right now, you're not wearing because you needed them, but because you wanted others to see you in them. Now, Now you don't have to raise your hand on this. But I know that there are people this morning who woke up, took your shower, getting ready to go to church, and looked in the closet and stood there like this. You got, what? You have so many choices. What am I going to wear? Let me check the weather. It's going to be 70 degrees. It's time for me to spring, bring out the spring collection. <laughs> oh, I better leave that alone. That's right. You didn't purchase that new car because you needed a car. You purchased that car because you wanted to be seen in that vehicle. I told y'all how we act when we get a new car, don't you? You sit different. <laughs> you drive slower. <laughs> and don't have a good sound system in there. They hear you coming down the street. Pastor, I'm just praying Kurt Franklin. Now, that's Kurt Franklin that you hear. Mm-hmm. They have Pandora now in your car. You Bluetoothing and everything else. You want to be seen. Solomon is saying that we all want to be noticed and we want to be the focus of attention. Therefore, we envy one another and compete with one another. Whether we care to admit it or not, rivalry is a driving force in all of us. Now help me here, ladies. Ladies know something about rivalry. Men, we may not pay as much attention. We don't do the clothes rivalry as men. But ladies, ladies do the rivalry. Don't y'all act like y'all don't. You notice some people when they walk in, mm, I bet she thinks she look good in that dress. <laughs> Let's see, I know that's nobody here because y'all all saved and sanctified and you've been delivered from that. Amen. <laughs> but uh, but uh, rivalry is a natural human thing. Men, men create rivalries over other stuff other than clothes. Now, we do have our sense of rivalry. We create rivals. We create that alpha male rivalry. You know, I got to be the big dog. And so we come in the room, we start looking for who's the bigger dog. <laughs> so we, we, we have, a, we have a, a rivalry that's a part of us. Some of us realize the evils of envy and rivalry and determine that we will be different. We don't want to be the kind of people who step on everyone else on our climb to the top. So we drop out 
of any competitive endeavor. Yet this is a dangerous extreme as well. In verse 5, Solomon shares a proverb. He says, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Now I'm going to let that marinate in you for a minute. The language of this verse means lazy people eventually make cannibals of themselves. They will kill themselves with starvation. Of course, Solomon is being sarcastic and he's using hyperbole here. He mocks the lazy since they don't raise any crops, since they don't tend to the field, since they don't grow anything, since they don't labor. The only food they have is their own flesh. In the 1960s, one entire generation got sick of the affluence of the 1950s. So this group bailed out and claimed the title of flower children. Amen. Everybody gave up ambition and the drive for financial success. They let their hair grow long. They quit taking baths and they just sat on the grass and played the guitar and hung. Obviously, this is not the way to accomplish God's purposes in the world. I mean, I, I, I would dare say that this is sheer laziness and foolishness. Now, reflecting on foolishness, please give careful attention to the word fool there in verse 5. When we read the word fool in the Bible, it is natural to assume that the term means idiot or buffoon. After all, this is what our English word fool means. Yet the biblical meaning of this word is something far worse. A fool is someone who denies God, scoffs at wisdom, and laughs at eternity. Foolishness is a theological stance, a show of contempt for God's laws. If you have contempt for God and the way he has designed for us to live, then you are a fool. Some of y'all didn't even want to say that. (laughs) God intends for mankind to work, particularly his church. This is why our church emphasizes the importance of a godly work ethic. We believe that everyone who is physically, mentally, and emotionally able should work. Paul said it best when he wrote to the church at Thessalonica, if anyone will not work, neither let him eat. Elsewhere, Paul said, whatever you do, Do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. The Bible is clear. We are to represent Christ in our work. Now, watch this. Here's a little story to kind of illustrate this. One day a mother walked in on her six-year-old son and she found him sobbing. He was crying. And and she said, what's the matter? The boy replied, I just figured out how to tie my shoes. She said to him, well, honey, that's wonderful. You're growing up. But why are you crying? Because, he says, now I have to do it every day for the rest of my life. (laughs) Maybe 
Maybe you feel like this six-year-old boy. <laughs> Maybe you're a stay-at-home mom and you recognize that you're going to be doing the same task for what might seem like the rest of your life. Perhaps you work a monotonous job day in and day out and it kills you to know that you may be working this job for the rest of your life. God wants you to know that there is glory in the grind. I wish I had. Look, look at somebody and say, neighbor, there's glory in the grind. There's glory in the grind. Shrug off laziness. Work like today is your last day of work, for it just might be. Work smarter, not harder. Now Solomon now strikes a balance between work, workaholism and laziness. His solution is found here in six look at what he says he says better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and of striving after the wind at first glance it seems that verse six and verse five contradict one another but we must recognize that verse six like verse five is a proverb the comparison is between anything with rest and anything with work this is not an argument in favor of laziness but it is a call to balance living blessed are the balanced the wise person realizes that some things matter more than other things. That your career is not a measure of your self-worth. That having more money can't replace the joy of spending time with the people you love. Contentment means that you have everything you need right now. Now watch this. This is why we get messed up on contentment. To be content means you have everything that you need right now. Now watch this. If you need it more, God would give it to you. I didn't say if you wanted more. If you need it more. My father who is rich in houses and land and holds the power of the world in his hand. He would give you more if you needed more. See, Solomon is saying rather than grasping for so much that you have to be a workaholic to get it. Learn to be content with less. It is better to have less and enjoy it more. Our problem is not the high cost of living. How many times you hear people say that the cost of living is too high? We're in the high cost of living. Our problem is not the high cost of living. It is the cost of high living. That's our problem. We want far too much. The cure is contentment, being willing, willing to settle for less materially if it means we can enjoy some rest. And rest is in the context of being around the people that you love, the things in life that really matter. How many of us are like little kids? You ever see them on Christmas morning? The toys they open up? 
are the best things in sliced bread. You would think that they had won the lottery. This is great. This is wonderful. This is fantastic. What do they think about two hours later? <laughs> Aren't you going to play with them? Uh, <laughs> it's all right. Where's the excitement that you had a couple of hours ago? And oh, don't, don't wait a month later. That toy is gathering dust somewhere. We never, we never, ever naturally break that habit. We're the same way. We buy something new. It's a certain way we feel when we put on a new suit of clothes. But after a while, that feeling wears off. And this is what keeps the fashion industry going. <laughs> they depend on the fact that you're going to get tired of the new clothes that you just bought. And you'll buy more new ones. So, so really it means being able to deal, contentment means being able to deal with less and be joyful in that. Second thing that Solomon says here as we move on. The second choice you have to make in order to, to really... Uh, understand this and and to work smarter and not harder is you have to choose relationship over riches you choose relationship over riches verse 7 to 12 reminds us that people should be our priority if you are too busy for the people in your life that matter most then guess what you are too busy Solomon says this, again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Do you know anyone like this? Of course you do. With that person in mind, I'd like to describe that person for you. This person believes in the value of hard work and the inherent dignity of a job well done. He's probably married and has at least three children whose picture he carries in his wallet. He loves his wife and thinks about her more than she knows. It's true. He works long hours. Often he's gone by six in the morning and doesn't come home to after seven or eight or later at night. The pressures at work are so enormous that it takes him an hour or two to unwind. So he doesn't spend much time talking in the evening. He's so tired that it's all he can do to read the paper, watch a little television, then wearily go to bed. His blood pressure is too high. He knows he needs to exercise. His diet isn't the best. And sometimes he's irritable and snaps at his family and regrets it later. It's true that he works 70 hours a week, but he doesn't think of himself as a workaholic. He simply loves his job and he's good at it. And thankfully, he is able to bring home a nice paycheck and provide good things for his family. One of these days, he plans to slow down and smell the coffee, but not today. He gulps his coffee and heads for the door before his family knows he's gone. One evening, he comes home. And his family is not there. While he was at work, the kids grew up. The wife went back to college and found a career of her own. Children moved out, and now the house is empty. He can't believe it. The board of directors made 
Jesus named him the CEO. Now there's no one to share the good news with. He made it to the top, but he's alone. Even if you're not a successful, high-powered CEO, you probably relate to this description. It is so easy to become consumed with work. We all tend to suffer from the hurry syndrome. We are busy people, so busy that sometimes we miss the significant people right in front of us. How many mothers and fathers have shortchanged their children? For an extra 10000 or 20000 a year. How many young consultants make great money but don't have friends because they travel every week? How many wealthy people have accumulated large nest eggs but no friends? Do you have anyone to enjoy life with? Are you taking the time to smell the coffee? Are you truly enjoying your children? Do you have any trusted friends? The need to have someone to enjoy life with prompts Solomon to touch on friendship and community. In verses 9 through 12, these three verses, here's some of the benefits of having friendship. Watch this now. Friends bring about good results in labor. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. Relationships grow out of shared work, whether it's yard work mission trips, service projects, or local church ministry. Two human souls combine their strength, creativity, talent, and ambition. There's something special about working together with at least one other person. There's a bond that takes place when people work or serve together. Who are you currently working with? Or serving with. Work smarter, not harder. Here's another one. Friends pick up one another in trouble. Look at verse 10. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. America, my brothers and sisters, is the land of the lonely. We cultivate loneliness in our culture. We take pride in being independent and alone. We even have a declaration of independence. Men especially are raised with this sort of macho attitude. I don't need anybody. And and yet when you go to men's group, what you hear time and time again is the loneliness of a man's heart. So men need other men. Now, here's another one. Friends warm one another in a cold world. Verse 11, Solomon says this. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Now, if you're married, does your spouse have cold feet? Don't answer that because they might be sitting next to you. (laughs) Think about that. One of the most difficult acts of service is to allow your spouse to warm their feet on you. Y'all acting like y'all. <laughs> yes, I'm coming by your house. Yes, I am. <laughs> I just kicked the door. <laughs> this, to allow your spouse to warm their feet, this is sheer, unconditional, agape kind of love. Sacrificing. 
Of course, you may not be the sacrificial servant type, so all you do is adjust the temperature on your waterbed or electric blanket. So if you go, here's some more cover. <laughs> However, in Solomon's time, cold was a much more serious issue. When forced to sleep in the open or even in a tent, the more bodies that huddled together, the warmer everybody would be. So Solomon says that two are better than one in staying warm. If you take two charcoals, heat them up, and then separate them, look what happens. They die out. Their heat is extinguished. They cannot generate sufficient heat when they're alone. That's why it's so important for the church to meet together. We come together to create a bonfire of fellowship that we might set one another aflame with zeal for serving the Lord. So who are you currently showing Christian love to? Work smarter, not harder. Verse 12 says, here's the thing, friends hold one another up in, diverse, in adversity. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. We need other people to give us strength in the midst of persecution and hardship. A threefold cord is not quickly broken was a proverbial way of saying there is strength in numbers we all face trials and tests of our faith if you have no one to walk through these dark times with you life will seem utterly impossible again this is why involvement in a local church is so important are you currently bearing someone else's burden work smarter not harder we must choose contentment over achievement and relationship over riches. So now Solomon concludes by just urging us to choose influence over popularity. This is how you work smarter, not harder. Choose influence over popularity. In, in, in this four-verse parable in 13 through 16, Solomon reminds us that popularity is fleeting. Therefore, we are better to choose influence over popularity. Better was a poor and wise youth, he says, than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was a stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people of all whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and striving after the wind. What is in view is in this parable is a succession of kings, none of whom fully satisfies the people. The point is that even though a young man may rise from the bottom of society to the top, not everyone will appreciate him. Not everyone will accept him. Therefore, since it's impossible to achieve full acceptance, it is foolish to spend one's life seeking advancement and popularity. You know, some folks that just seem like they do anything to be popular. There's no lie they won't tell. <laughs> huh? I mean, you know, every, 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 you ever see people like that? Every time there's a conversation, they have a story. 
that makes them seem fantastic. Well, you know, I was walking down the street. Well, let me tell you what happened when I was walking down the street. There was a car that came up on the curb and I stopped it with my bare hands. You're a superhero. Who knew? <laughs> so it's better, it's better to stay poor and wise. From this unimpressive position, it may be possible to influence more people than you ever thought possible. Influence must always trump popularity because popularity is temporary. If we're honest honest with ourselves, we acknowledge that life at the top is fleeting. Our attention span is short. Our memory is non-existent. And our only question is, what have you done for me lately? Presidents and prime ministers can have high approval ratings. And they'll last for a while, but they don't last. After a while, we get tired of a president. I don't care how good we think they are. After a while, the approval ratings start dropping. They come in with excitement and galas and balls and all of that. And by the time they leave, we be like, I'm sure glad they're gone. (laughs) Former Dallas Cowboy quarterback Don Meredith used to say this about the quarterback. He says, today you're in the penthouse. Tomorrow you're in the outhouse. Now, what is true of quarterbacks is also true of pastors, state workers, teachers, and small business owners. Popularity does not last. Today's heroes are tomorrow's bums. Become president of the Rotary Club or the PTA. Get elected chairman of your homeowners association. You'll be doing great if more than half the people still like you when your term is up. Achievement. Riches and popularity can all expire on us just like Codex Chief. These three pursuits are so temporary. In the end, they are a bell. They're just a breath of vapor, a mist, and utter futility. So work smarter and not harder. Find your joy in Christ. The Apostle Paul was in Athens on a missionary journey when he came upon a group of Greek philosophers and standing among them, he said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription. It said, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God, perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, Paul says to them, he is not actually far from each of us. 
And this is the part I love. This is where you got to find your joy in Christ right here. Paul says all of that to get to this last verse in verse 28. He says, for in him we live and move and have our being. Even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. If you want to work smarter and not harder, find your joy in Christ. Understand that every question of life is answered in him. I'm so glad to report that he answers all things. Everything is in him. Joy is in him. Peace is in him. Happiness is in him. When I get to yours, just say something. Love is in him. Everything is in him. And salvation is in him. You will find no salvation in how hard you work. You will find no lasting joy in the number of overtime hours that you put in. But learn to find your joy in Christ. For if you find joy in Christ, you will have a lasting joy and a lasting peace. And you will be able to say, it is well with my soul. That's a statement of contentment. It is well with my soul. I can give my life to him because it's well. With today's heroes are tomorrow's bums. Become president of the Rotary Club or the PTA.